So I'm going to take you to the book of Acts again today. We've been talking about the apostolic church. Again, I want to use the phrase apostolic as a, you know, not as a noun, but, but as an adjective. It's describing some, something, 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 something. I got stuck there for a second. My, my lips got in the way. What I want to do is I just want to remind you that the book that we call Acts, the full title is really the Acts of the, of the Apostles, the Acts of the Apostles. So when we read the book of Acts, just like when we read the book of Genesis, when we read the book of Genesis, it's the beginning of everything in the story of everything. God's story, what he's doing from creation all the way through to a nation. It, it's God's story. And then when we read, read the book of Acts, it becomes the story of how that the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost fell on those early apostles and early disciples and how the Holy Spirit led them into a worldwide movement to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is where we get to come in and say, we're, we're just following along on the bootstraps of those people who went before us. And my concern today is that in reading the book and going back and reading the history, that we would rediscover what it was like in the early days. Now, I don't want to idolize them. I don't want to memorialize them. I want to live them. I want to experience them, don't you? Church as you've always wanted could be the subtitle of the apostolic church. Church is the way you expect it to be. When you come to church, don't you want to find loving people? Amen? Some of you are not telling the truth. You want to find loving people. Can I just tell you, we're broken people, and we're learning how to love. So, you know, I mean, in one sense, if you go into the emergency room at the hospital, and you look around and say there's sick people everywhere, what do you expect? I mean, it's an emergency room, right? You come into church, you find a bunch of broken people who are trying to connect, trying to follow, trying to love Jesus, this God who won't let us have a selfie of him. We have to follow by faith, don't we? But he's led breadcrumbs and a trail, and the trail leads right through the book of Acts. Did I tell you that the book of Acts is actually called the Acts of the Apostles? Can I tell you that the long version is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles? Can I tell you that... <laughs> I could really actually tell you that the title of the book is The Acts of the Holy Spirit Through the Apostles After the Day of Pentecost And Continues to This Day Through the Church of Jesus Christ. But let's just simplify and call it the book of Acts. Which means that there's something that we're supposed to do. There's something we're supposed to be. In Acts chapter 4, I'm going to lead you there. I'm going to show you some uh, scriptures again in just a moment. But if uh, you have been around or if you've listened to some of the, um, the videos, if you've shared our videos online with anyone else, if you got a chance to see them, you probably understand that when I've been talking about the, the um, apostolic church, the first thing that I said is that the apostolic church is Christ-centered. And you would think that's like a no-brainer. I mean, the very fact that the church is the church, 
means that, uh, well, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my Father in heaven. And then he says, upon this I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. On that revelation that Jesus is the Christ. So you would think that the church would be Christ-centered. But can I tell you that the church can become other things centered a lot of times. And I, as a pastor, I can be guilty of the same thing. So the question is, what is God saying to the church right now? Well, I'm going to tell you, as a minimum, I believe that, that, the, that the Lord is saying, I want my church back. You know, you know, I want my church back. I want the church to be centered not around politics, not around social things. I, I want the church to be centered around Jesus Christ. If the church is centered around Jesus Christ, guess what's the next thing? The next thing is you would expect that that church and the church today should be love-motivated. There's where I want to go right now. We should be love-motivated. Any expression from God, if God is love, any expression from God is going to reveal what? Love. It, it, it just makes sense. If God is love, what do you expect Jesus would be? What he was. Very loving, very kind, very nurturing. Could he be bold? Could be be aggressive? Could he have a backbone and stand up? Could he turn over the tables of money changers and say, this is wrong? Could he get an attitude? Yes, he could do all of that. But also, he could bend down and touch a child. He could push his disciples away and say, you guys just don't get it. I mean, the kingdom of God is entered like this. You got to be like this. And the guys are trying to posture themselves and figure out who's the greatest, who's the best. Even when Jesus uh, was celebrating that last supper with his apostles before he was going to die, what did they do? They were talking about who's the greatest. Now, what I want to point out there is that when Jesus found me, just like when he found you, Our world was not Christ-centered. Your world, my world, was me-centered, self-centered. So not only did Jesus call us out of a world system, he called us out of ourselves. And, And he starts to say, look, I want the center of your world As much as I love you, and I want to show you how much I love you, but it is good for you that you, well, it's just best that there's only one God. A man can't serve two masters. So he asks you and me to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him. So it makes perfect sense to me that if Jesus is loving as his father is loving that the words I'm about to read is expected from the people who love God in Acts 4 verse number 32 the congregation of those who believed now this is not the whole world this is those that heard the message of Jesus Christ the testimony of Jesus and they responded to the testimony of Jesus Then the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
Or is it fair to say they were of one heart and one soul? Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. I want to read that verse just one more time because we're just going to look at that one verse for right now. And I want you to just, as you, as, as you hear these words, I want you to imagine that a group of people who had heard the testimony of Jesus, heard about the resurrection, heard the speaking in other languages, was attracted to that, asked for an explanation, and Peter gets up and preaches Jesus Christ. He takes right away this opportunity to go running right for Jesus and say, this is Jesus, the one you rejected. He's the Savior of the world. And, and, and then people were convicted and they accepted Christ. And then they kept, they kept on sharing that message and the church began to multiply. So what was important is that the ones who were sharing the message also were somewhat the message. In other words, the, you know, even if you didn't say, look, I, you know, I heard Peter preaching and everything he said just resonated. And, and I know the Old Testament and I know that God is one and there's no other God but God. I know all of that. But now to say that Jesus is God, I mean, that was a mystery to me. But, but, but when I embraced that message, it transformed my life. And I don't really know how to explain that to you, but I'm going to tell you that hearing a message changed my life. Hallelujah. And as their lives were transformed, transformed lives became attractive. They became salt. They became light. And people start gathering together. And now, you know, they go from 120, 120 to 3,000 to 3,120. 3,120, and then 2,000, there's 5,120. There's, you know, this thing is growing and multiplying, and they don't have a church building. They don't even call themselves the church yet. They don't even know that's what they are. People said, those people who are of that way, of the way, they didn't even know, it's the way of Christ, the people who are following the Nazarene. They didn't have language for all of this yet. They didn't have buildings. They didn't have a structure or organization. But what they had was the presence of Jesus. And the presence of Jesus caused them to just want to be together and do things together and worship him together. And they had no place to do it, so they go over to Solomon's portico. It's an outbuilding. It's an out, like a, a roof, like Josh, your house. That out roof over, you know, that it's supported by columns. Um, I used to know how many columns. I can't remember right now. But there, it's supported by uh, like um, Corinthian columns, Athenian-type uh, architecture. And it's got a roof on it. And so they could be out of the sun, out of the heat, out of the elements. And they would be as close to the temple as they could be, but um, not thrown out of the temple. You know, so they're, they're, they're meeting. And they're, they're meeting together. And the one thing that the Holy Spirit wanted us to know about this story, he wanted it to be locked in. Something that you and I know and re remember for all time and eternity is that congregation with nothing but Jesus were of one heart and one soul. 
can't even imagine it, can you? Actually, I can. I've seen it. I've experienced it. So I'm going to just lock in on that phrase, one heart, one soul, and just speak about that for a moment. First of all, the question is, whose heart? Well, one heart. Whose heart? Obviously, we, we would know that it would be Jesus' heart. And Judy's smiling because when I, this, is, this is the point where I always say, like, when uh, Elmer Kite, Pastor Elmer Kite, married Judy and I, he said, the two of you will become one. And it was sort of in my mind that we would become me. If there's only going to be one of us, why not, why not make it me? Because I'm a likable guy. Judy already loves me. And I'm really comfortable with me. So <clears throat> when I realized it was after the honeymoon, probably, somewhere along the way that this little woman, and I mean, she's not a really big package, you know, could have a will <laughs> that was as big as a giant. And she's looking down on me, and I'm looking up at her and saying, I thought we were going to be me. Oh, my gosh. So I became a student of Judy. I would be called a Judaizer, <laughs> yes. They became one heart whose heart. It had to be Jesus, right? That had to be the agreement. How many of you know that your heart cannot accept what your mind rejects? In other words, if you, if, if someone comes toward you and their arms are open and they're waiting for a big embrace from you and you have history with them, your heart cannot accept what your mind rejects. So I'm going to tell you that in order to become one heart, it's never going to work for the church to try to love better. Even when we tell each other we could do better, I'm just going to tell you that we are so helplessly human that unless the Spirit of God is transforming us day by day, every day, unless we are giving heed to God's word, we will not have the capacity to love everybody the way we should. And if you tell me that you just love everybody, I'm going to tell you, you're wrong. I really want to say you're a liar. But, you know, <laughs> I'll be nice and say you're wrong. Because we can't. We can't solve racial problems this way. We cannot solve political problems this way. We cannot solve 
family problems this way because my heart will not accept what my mind rejects. So we have to start with the one soul. If we're going to ever hope to be one heart, we're going to have to be one soul first. That, that is a very difficult assignment. So I'm going to ask you to consider with me that maybe this happened to you, but it certainly happened to them. And I really believe that every true follower of Jesus Christ has this point in their life where they just surrender. They just surrender. They surrender to Jesus. They say yes to Jesus. Oh, my goodness, how much pain and suffering could be eliminated if we just surrendered to Jesus every day, every moment of the day. But there comes this moment when you yield yourself to Jesus and when you yield yourself to him and you, 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 you say yes to Jesus and you maybe it was a course of weeks, course of months, course of years. Who knows how long that Jesus was pulling you and wooing you. You might have been in church. You may not have been in church. But there came this time, there came this moment when you said yes to Jesus. And when you said yes to Jesus, like when I said yes to Judy, I said no to all the other women in the world. You know? As it should be. So if I say yes to Jesus, then I'm actually saying no to all other would-be lords in my life. And the, the biggest enemy, don't you love when Carolyn sings Defender? I just, oh my gosh. Because I know that she's singing it, but she's also worshiping, and I, I, I know that that's her testimony. So when we realize that that Jesus goes and fights our battles and he comes back with the head of our enemy, I'm going to tell you that I'm not sure about your experience, but the first enemy and the one I keep running into over and over again, the first head I saw was my own. I am my own worst enemy in so many ways. Like I sort of thought with Jesus, I could do the same thing I tried to do with Judy, you know, the two of us are one, why don't, uh, why don't we just be me, Jesus, Lord? <laughs> and of course, it can't be. And we know that rationally, when we think about it, is there's no way that could ever happen. But we functionally, we live that way so much of the time. So I'm going to suggest that if you say yes to Jesus, you're yielding to him. And I believe that those early disciples, when they yielded to them, I, I mean, it, it, it was, we're in a culture that is, um, some people call it post-Christian, but post-modern, whatever. But I mean, we're not in a culture that regularly persecutes Christians. We're not in a culture where the, the culture's religion regularly abuses and rejects us. Um, there's There's a lot of accommodation. In, in fact, I, I think there should be more. But the truth of the matter is that our dream of America is becoming something of a nightmare because we allowed for the freedom of religion, which means 
you open the door for people who have other faiths and other thoughts and other paths, other options and other philosophies. So we became a pluralistic society and we're one segment in that society. But you and I still don't understand what it was like to be Jewish in Jesus' day and embrace Jesus. When you had been taught, for, I mean, the first thing you heard your daddy teaching you was the Shema. Hear, O Israel. And I'm, you know, like, it's, it's um, you know, the point that, uh, that Gary's tried to make with, you know, get ready. Um, the hero Israel's is is the same thing. It's it's like, you know, this is when Jesus said, "If you have an ear to hear, let him hear." That's the definition of hero Israel. He's actually saying it's a challenge. If you will hear this, if you will hear this, you'll know that the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. So, I mean, that's where it starts. And then the next thing is you're to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you add into it Pharisaism and, and Sadducees and all the other traditions and elders and rulers and, and um, the, the, the tradition of the elders. and Bring all that together and, and try to figure out what a religious culture that is being governed by an oppressive regime, you know, how do they live their lives? And in the midst of that, someone hears the message of Jesus Christ. Someone hears the testimony of Jesus. And just like today, it transformed their lives. And now they have to live with the fallout of that. So for this group of people to become of one soul, mean they were set on one thing and that one thing was Jesus so I guess at the end of the day I mean you know maybe Stephanie and Annie can help me with this but I I'm thinking that the average um, Jewish believer in Jesus day probably had to say like I, I gotta be honest with you I don't understand it but it changed my life it transformed me so I'm going to go with that. I'm, I'm just going to be all in and go with that, which means they surrendered their me badge. I take my me badge, I give it to Jesus. As a matter of fact, I take my me, me badge and I throw it before him as an act of worship every day of my life. And that's where you and I enter in this thing today. But unless we get centered on something that is changing that Jesus had talked about, it's going to be very hard the bigger the thing gets and the more it extends, especially into families and into clans, people groups that are used to living very closely together. Maybe you don't realize that the shepherds and the merchants didn't live together. They weren't near each other. In fact, the shepherds were the most despised people in society. Which is kind of cool that Jesus decided to announce his birth to the shepherds first, you know. You want a revival? Find the most despised people and take the love of Jesus to them. Boom. Done. 
So I was doing what Annie was doing. I was doing the same thing. I think it's healthy. We should examine ourselves. And I was examining myself, and I came on this upon this scripture, and the Lord began to speak to me. And he said, there has to be that people are able to see something different. People have to be able to see something different. So I did what you would do, right? I got my mirror. I have my mirror. My mirror has a, yeah, it is. It has the Funhouse monster side. That's not the side I want. Then it's got the side where I should have combed my hair and whatever, you know. But I went over to my mirror and I felt the Spirit of God saying, look deeply. And I want you to see if you can see me, my presence. And I look in the mirror and I'm saying, I just see uh, an aging man, bloodshot eyes, in desperate need of makeup. Terry, I don't know if you can help a brother out. Not that he uses makeup, but I mean, maybe he could... Gavin, between the you and Carrie and Terry, maybe you could make me look prettier. But probably not. Turn the lights off. There we go. It's problem solved. I'm looking in this mirror, and I'm saying, God, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. I just, I don't, I don't see it. And then he reminded me of something. And as he reminded me of something, and I'm looking at myself in the mirror, I'm, I'm looking and staring and peering, and I'm just trying to see what he sees. And he says to me, you'll never see the value of heaven by looking in a mirror. You have to look into the mirror of God's word, and there you'll see how I see people. And God said, I love the world. I love the world. I gave my son for the world. <clears throat> if you keep looking in the mirror, you're going to see what's different. If you keep looking in the mirror, you're going to see what what is right, what is wrong, what is in, what is out, what needs fixed, what needs corrected. You're just going to see people. But heaven, heaven doesn't see people the way you see people. Jesus hanging on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Can I just take you to Hebrews chapter 11 for one moment? Hebrews chapter 11. If you found Hebrews 11, put your finger there and go with me to Genesis. Chapter 18. This is the story of Abraham and Sarah. 
God came. When Abraham was pondering his whole relationship with God and God's promise for a child and all that had gone on and all that was going wrong in his life, one day he looks out and he sees three men approaching his tent. Verse number two says, he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when they saw him, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Verse three, and he said, my Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. He doesn't know who he's actually talking to, but he thinks it might be God, and he's just not going to miss the opportunity. Verse 5, and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourself after you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly, wife, prepare three measures of flour, knead it, make bread cakes. And Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender choice calf, this is the gross part, and gave it to them. He killed it, ate, they eat. Verse 8, he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? He said to them, she's over there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in age, Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure in my Lord being old also? It was Sarah's way of saying, um, I live with an old man. I've never been able to have a child. I'm not so young anymore either. Verse 13, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this next time, this next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. Can you imagine telling the Lord? You're really wrong about this one, Lord. I did not laugh. I snorted. <laughs> then the men rose up from there and looked down towards Sodom. Whoops, I jumped the verse. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. 
busted by the Lord. Now let's go over to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. In the hall of faith, men and women who've gone before us, Sarah's testimony is recorded with one verse. In verse 11, Hebrews 11, 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Hello. Did you read the story? Oh, God read the story. He knew the story. But he saw what she didn't see. He saw what you and I couldn't see. We would just look, old man, old woman, it ain't going to happen. She laughed. She blew it big time. And God should have taken her blessing away. He didn't rebuke her. He didn't reproach her. But in her honor, he puts her name in Hebrews chapter 11 with all the men and women of faith that went on before us and he said she believed God was faithful. Heaven records people's lives from end to beginning not from the segment you see in the middle. He sees it all, the end from the beginning. He sees our faith. He sees our failure. He sees our up. He sees our down. But he sees us as a complete, and he knows what he's trying to do. Hello, that's why you should prophesy. Don't prophesy the problem. Don't pray the problem. What takes courage is to stand up and say, God sees you're a woman of God, a woman of integrity, a woman with a purpose, and you you're going to change history. <laughs> Hallelujah. Why can't we? Why can't we? Why can't we become of one soul? Put the mirror away. Don't look with eyes. Don't listen with ears. Listen with the heart. See what God is saying. You might find a friend. You might find a friend. So as I was contemplating that, God just took me to person after person. Zacchaeus. I love the story. Jesus sees him in a tree trying to get visual sight of Jesus and in front of everybody Jesus honors him and says I must come to your house today everybody else knew him to be a scumbag he was the worst of the worst he cheated he distorted he took he used his power he used his position for his own gain and Jesus never addressed it we have no record that Jesus ever talked to him anything about his dealing with money. He just, all Jesus did was say, I've got to come to your house today. In front of everybody, he honored that man. And then that man begins to give of his money to the entire community. He gives all his money away with a small exception. He's given things back 
he has probably impacted the economy of the entire community just because Jesus honored him. I'm going to tell you, you and I have enough of the Spirit of God and instruction in us to know that actually heaven sees people differently than we do. So if we can agree on that, we will become people of 